Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action is brought to you by Northern Trust Front Office Solutions. Northern Trust's platform empowers asset owners with better operations and tech support to allow investment teams and CIOs to meet their middle and front office needs. Their blend of technology and service has resonated and generated a lot of interest from listeners of the show. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is deeply ingrained in the culture at Northern Trust, and a special thanks to them for sponsoring this important miniseries. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. Shortly after I finished the interviews for the Sustainable Investing miniseries, Black Lives Matter took center stage in the United States. I asked around and discovered that the subject is uncomfortable for many to discuss, and that while many CIOs are interested in being part of the solution, most are not familiar with the underlying nature of the problem or the actions to take as a result. This miniseries, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness, and Action, is a four-part introduction to the issues at hand. We'll explore what's been going on for a long time and hear what some are doing about it. It's my small part in contributing to fostering the conversation. My guest on the second episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness and Action is Kim Liu, the highly regarded chief investment officer of the Carnegie Corporation and a two-time former guest on the show. Our conversation starts with Kim's childhood and early career experience with conscious and subconscious bias. We then turn to her career as an allocator and cover the challenges and opportunities afforded by diversity across investment teams, manager selection, and running a fund. We close with a discussion of organizations supporting diversity and the challenges of making progress in a mature industry. Please enjoy my conversation with Kim Liu in this, the second episode of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Awareness and Action. Kim, thanks so much for joining me again. I am looking forward to talking to you. We're going to attach the link to our first conversation so people can really get the detailed background. But I thought it would help to start just reiterating kind of where you came from in life. So Kim Liu, born in Harlem Hospital in New York City to two 17-year-old children, let's just say. My mother is an African-American woman whose family hailed from the South. And my father is a Chinese immigrant who came from southern China. 
by way of Hong Kong and Canada. And in your upbringing, you know, pre, say, professional career, what did you find from that perspective of being seen as different in lots of different ways? What did you find through your childhood and life? So it's really interesting. I've thought a lot about this because being half Black and half Chinese brings with it two very different stereotypes. And sort of navigating through that meant different things to different people. And so I could find myself in an uncomfortable position everywhere. It could be uncomfortable in the Black community. It could be uncomfortable in the white community. It could be uncomfortable in the Asian community. So you sort of sit in a place where you're always trying to figure out whether you fit or not. So I remember when I was really little that I would start out a conversation with the fact that I was half Black and half Chinese, right? Just in case anybody didn't know. Because if you were going to be mean to me or if you were going to treat me badly as a result of it, I wanted to know right away before I wasted my time becoming your friend or trying to become your friend and then learning that you were that person. So, you know, it's a heavy load for a little kid. But I remember it from when I was really young, like kindergarten, first grade. And was that just personality that allowed you to be so extroverted about it? Well, I think it was a function of my parents. I think they were always very clear that we were in an unusual position. I think my father, particularly being in Harlem and then being in the Bronx, sort of always felt slightly not apart and felt that pretty strongly. And then I think that probably translated a little bit to me and my brother a fair amount. I remember my brother, when he was really young, he used to get in fights all the time. And I remember one particular fight he got in, and I think he was maybe second grade because a boy told him he had mismatched parents. And it turned into a whole big thing. And, you know, it was sort of always present in our lives. And so we were keenly aware that we were different. Like, so we were in a Black and Hispanic community, and we were the different people there and in all of our environments. But not to say that that didn't benefit us sometimes. So let's be clear. I'm also painfully aware that the positive stereotypes of being Asian also helped us in those environments. Like it gave us access to a lot of things or people assumed, like they assumed I was good at math for some reason. And so when I was good at math, people didn't think that was strange. So I think that I don't want to underestimate the things that worked in our favor as well. As you were growing up, did you ever see being Black or being Chinese or both as a pervasive problem as opposed to just challenges you were facing? Well, as long as I was aware of the world, which that probably happened more in high school and maybe even college because my world was pretty small before then, I said, but I think as long as I was aware of the world, I knew it was an issue. I don't think that there's any Black parent, especially a Black parent living in the neighborhoods I lived in, who don't have the talk with their kids about what it means to be an African-American, especially in a place like New York City, where they don't take the time to say, look, this is the situation and you should be very careful about these situations. I'll give you an example of something that happened to me in high school that was very clear. I lived in housing projects in the Bronx, and this is going to sound crazy, but one day a bullet comes through the window of the house and the police get called and they came in. And I would imagine that if in the neighborhood I live in now or in the neighborhood you live in, if a bullet comes through somebody's window, the first thing the cops are going to do is to be sympathetic to that. But it was so, what have you done? Who is your boyfriend? Is someone mad at you? Because I was up late studying. Everybody else was asleep. And for the record, I lived on the ninth floor. Like, how is this somebody targeting me? But anyway, it was very interesting how much I felt like I was being attacked in that conversation. Like, what had I done to encourage this to happen to me? And I just can't imagine that being something that would happen to my kids. But then, of course, it creates a conversation in my house. You have to be very careful about how you answer questions, who you talk to, not getting angry really quickly and not being put off and what that means. And I didn't learn that lesson for the record, but <laughs> it sparks conversations. Little things like that happen all the time. And your parents have to sit down and have a conversation with you about what that means. So I don't think there was any time when I was engaged in understanding the world that it wasn't made real to me. 
And when you started out your career in the early years of your career, where did you see the nature of these sort of racial discrimination issues present themselves? I think that I've always been a person who's been very friendly and pretty outgoing. And I remember a friend of mine's having a conversation with me recently, and he was like, your superpower is that you can talk to anybody. And there's some truth to that. So even when I was younger, and honestly, my mother is that person, and so is my father. I come from a long line of people who are just good at talking to people. And so when I was younger, because I talked to people a lot, and because I was really comfortable talking to a lot of people, people get comfortable. They will say things that they may be more guarded about saying in other environments. So I'd always hear comments about, you're not like other black people or you're sort of different. And you hear a lot of comments that sort of being just a little shocked that you're good at that. Just a little, wow, like how did you learn that? Or what made it possible for you to know that in a way that was clearly surprised? And when people are surprised, that makes you feel like, is there a reason why they're surprised, right? <laughs> you know, I think it does a lot to a young person's psyche when that happens. And so you have to have something on the other side that's bolstering you in those moments when what people say to you can create self-doubt. I was fortunate. I had a family who was incredibly supportive and always high expectations and always saying that, of course, you can do that. And of course, you should do that and always creating pathways. So a lot of people don't have that, but I had that in spades. Did you notice any particular difference on the side of race or gender? I will tell you that the first job that I had after college, I left because of gender issues, not race issues. When I went to Chemical Bank, which is where I worked, I particularly chose the areas of the commercial bank, because I was in middle market banking, that dealt with Long Island and Brooklyn and Queens because I wanted real businesses. And if you worked in the city, you end up with financial institutions. And so I sort of wanted to see what it was like to be real businesses. And it tended to be a more diverse population. They were slightly different than the New York City crowd. But the sexism was profound. I remember being in a meeting. This is going to sound like a flippant comment, but it was, I was 21 years old. And I'm in an, a meeting with a head of credit and the head of the group that I was in. So pretty senior people in the bank. And they were talking about this deal that they wanted to get. It was a big company, one on the larger side of the middle market. It has turned into a, a great company since. But they were anxious to get this deal. And they said, we will do whatever we have to do to get this deal, even if it means putting Kim on the table. And I was like, oh, did I just hear that? <laughs> and the youngest person in the room, the most junior person in the room, sort of flipped, obviously not completely intentional, but the impact that made on me was, okay, so this is not a good place for me because that the fact that they would even say that they're so casual about their conversation that they think that that's okay. So it wasn't because I didn't have any particular issues around race, even though all the senior people in the firm were white males, there weren't even any women. It was all white males, but I didn't feel particularly any race issues there, but definitely issues around being a woman. And how about as you progressed through your career? I'll say this. The first time I was ever called the N-word was in Boston on HBS campus. I go to Boston, I walk on campus, and literally, I don't think I was on campus for more than two hours when a car drove by on the highway and someone shouts out the car. And I was like, where am I? <laughs> like, what is this place? And you know, Boston has a certain reputation and it's an interesting place. But if you are on a business school campus like HBS, it's intimidating enough because it's so foreign to where you've come from and what you know. And that's the first thing that happens to you. It sort of sets the tone for that first year. It really makes you self-conscious about how you speak up and how you're received. And that was a powerful first experience. And I also remember in my first year of business school, you're with your same section for all classes during the first year. And there was a guy who I actually quite liked. And we were doing a case about the lottery. And he said, well, we can't take 
the lottery out of poor neighborhoods because how would black and Hispanic people ever feel they could get out if they didn't have the option of the lottery? And I was like, oh my God, is this literally how people feel? So it's all these little subtle things that you hear in these environments that sort of make you question whether or not you're going to get a fair shake, like how people are perceiving you, their thoughts about how you got there and whether you belong there and whether this is a safe space. It's really hard to do well at HBS if you don't speak up in class. If you have so much self-doubt and you are always wondering about whether someone is perceiving you as not belonging there or less than, it's much harder to speak up than it is when you feel like this is a place that you belong. And I think people underestimate that. And then it translates into your jobs, right? You go into a job and you see everybody around you who speaks the same language and knows the same things. And, and perhaps you don't, right? Like there was a lot of conversation around golf. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know anything about, I don't even know what they're talking about. And it's just all those little subtle things that make you be right outside the gate. You're right outside the conversation. Like I said, I've always been a person who's really comfortable talking to people I don't know. So I kind of soaked in information and got comfortable over time. But if you're not that person, I think it can be very intimidating and really hard to figure out how to find your way in. So with your specific experiences as you evolved past Wall Street onto the allocator side in your career, how did you bring those differences to the surface so that people could understand and get better at those unconscious issues? When I went to the Ford Foundation, that was a very unusual thing. People didn't leave the for-profit world to go to the not-for-profit world. And the perception of that being a good job, which it is now, wasn't the case. And so when I went to the Ford Foundation, I was by far the youngest person. It tended to be the career of people who, this was the end of their career, or they had made it big on the street and now they wanted a different lifestyle. And so that's why they chose to come to the Ford Foundation. And so the sense of competition was different. I was this junior person on some level, everybody could sort of wrap their arms around me and feel good about that because I did not compete with them. And for more than half, I was the age of their children. So just a very different relationship. And so I think that it's very different for people who go into banking where you're squarely competing with someone else and you're trying to figure out how to make your way. I didn't have to do that. And there also was a senior African-American male at the Ford Foundation at the time, Clint Stevenson, who sort of took me under his wing too. So, and like I said, no one else really saw me as competition. And so that made it easy too. So I think that was an unusual experience than a lot of other people find. And I'm grateful for it because I could operate on merit there in a way that I think would have been harder if I was someplace else. And then as you moved to Carnegie, I know Ellen Schumann, who was the CIO at the time, was someone who always prided herself on diversity on her team. How did that play out? I was the youngest person when I went to Ford. I was one of the oldest people when I went to Carnegie. So I came at it a little differently. And she and I always had a good rapport. I knew her before I got there. She's a person who's super easy to talk to. She believes in mentorship. And she believes in the importance of teamwork and collaboration. And so she sort of fosters that amongst the people that work there. I will say that ultimately it was very different at the Ford Foundation. I had a lot of conversations there that were more uncomfortable around race. And I had much more confrontational conversations there than by the time I left. When I first got there, I was too young for anybody to engage with me that way. But by the time I left, I was 40 years old. I was in a different place. The nature of the conversations were very different. Carnegie was never like that. And I do think it's a function of who Ellen is and the nature of who she was as a person. I do think she is a very merit-based person, the way she thinks of things. So as you came to take the helm at Carnegie, there's sort of two sides of how you think about it. One is sort of what happens on your team. And then the other is how you make your investments and how you think about the importance of diversity and inclusion across that. So why don't you start with your team and what have you tried to do in running a team and building a team? When I began, I was co-CIOs with Meredith, as you know. 
and one of the best people on the planet, full stop. She approaches and receives people in a way that is just so generous, right? Like she's just a good person. And I think that sort of set the tone for who we were as a team. And we thought and talked a lot about diversity and what that meant for us. And honestly, we started with trying to add a man because our team was so heavily women. And I said that in a conference one day because Ken Lee was the hire and he's a, obviously a man and, and he's an Asian man. And at a conference, I said he was our diversity hire because we didn't have enough men on the team. And there's truth to that. We thought of him in diversity for a lot of reasons. One, we wanted to add men to the team. We also wanted to add somebody who thought about investing in a different way than the typical ENF person. He had come from a hedge fund of funds. And we thought that perspective would challenge us and make us think differently. So we were always trying to have a primary, secondary devil advocacy relationship with everybody on the team. And in order for that to be effective, we thought we had to have people who thought differently and had different backgrounds but who were really good communicators, which is hard. You can have people with very different backgrounds, but everybody feeling free to voice their opinion and everybody being free to disagree in a constructive way and being okay with losing the fight is really hard. I work on it every day with the team. It's not easy. For sure, we all hire alphas and we all hire people who were the smartest person in their class and we hire the people who was all their lives been told by their, their parents, their teachers, their employers that they were fabulous. And now they have to lose half the time, right? Like, I think it's hard. One of the problems that we find ourselves in right now in this country is the fact that people with different ideas don't speak to each other and we can't ever find common ground. And, and there is going to be advantages to those who take the time to understand that not everybody thinks like you, not everybody has your same shared experience. And so the reaction to this thing is not going to be the same. And so you can leverage that to make good investments. And I don't think people think about it that way, but I think there's value in that. How have you taken that lens and tried to think about it in the managers in your portfolio? I think one of the biggest things that gives Carnegie an advantage, and I'm not in any way implying that we have been great about hiring diverse managers. We have them. I don't think we've done a great job. And I think we've not done a great job because by nature of foundations, the turnover in our portfolios is really slow. So if you're not purposeful and deliberate about it, it's difficult for it to happen. And I also think we have really small teams. So we're always trying to have really concentrated portfolios. And so all that stands in the way of actually adding talent. But what I do think that I have tried to do and I think is really important is having people question the biases and make sure that there's nothing fundamental in the way they think about things that will automatically disadvantage a diverse manager when they come through the door. And also making people question the shortcuts they use, why they use them, and are they relevant? So. For instance, people will spend a lot of time talking about, I like somebody who's worked on a team because it shows they can be a team player. And I particularly like people who have been on the lacrosse team because it requires a lot of teamwork and it requires a lot of finesse and a lot of good communication. And so that's who I choose. Well, if that's your bias, you are going to disadvantage people of color. Let's just instead think about what someone being on the lacrosse team tells you about them, and is there another proxy for that that is more applicable for a person of color or a person who's just come from a different background who may not have had access to being on the lacrosse team? Maybe they worked. Did they work in a restaurant that the way shifts were coordinated, the way the, the restaurant was run took a lot of teamwork? took a lot of coordination. And that tells you the same thing, like just challenging people to think about whether or not they're using shortcuts that disadvantage people. And I think there's a lot of that. And so it's not racist or it's not sexist per se. It's just shortcuts. And we all have to use them because the workday is long and you just have to get people to step outside of the shortcuts that they normally use and try to develop some others. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. And I think putting people who have a wider lens 
in a position to screen. Like there's one person on my team, Alisa Mall, who does the screening of diverse managers. She sees the world really wide, so she can take a lot more in than others who don't have as much experience. And I think that's made a difference. So just thinking about the barriers and trying to reduce the barriers where possible. Also, I think the people on our team, all of the people, every single person on my team is really good at having open dialogue with our managers. And we spend a lot of time investing in building partnership. And so we can ask them questions that are a little bit tougher, a little bit more sensitive because we've invested in them and they know we've invested in them. And this, no matter how you answer, that doesn't end our relationship. I'm trying to make you better. I'm trying to make you a better manager. How do you think about this? What do you think you're missing by not having diverse people on your team? What's the bottleneck? Do you not have a pipeline? Do you not have experience mentorship? Can we help you in any way with that and, and offer you some guidance and introduce you to the people that you know? I know that we all fish from our own pond. And so maybe your pond doesn't include that and you just need a little help and we're willing to do that for you. And I think because we try to approach it in a constructive way with people, that so far, no one's bristled at the conversation. And we don't want people to feel defensive. We just want them to think about it and think about whether or not they are being their best selves if they aren't including diverse talent in their pipeline and in their organizations. And we also want to spend a lot of time with them talking about whether or not they are creative systems that allow everybody to potentially flourish. And so... So far, it's been good. We've not had any conversation. We've walked away thinking, oh, my God, that didn't go well. <laughs> and that damaged the relationship in any way, or at least not so far. You know, we'll see. Let me try to make sure I frame out that structurally how you think about this. So there is this sort of issue of low turnover portfolios and a legacy portfolio that may not have had a lot of diversity, which could be somewhat consistent with lots of different allocators. Then you have a group of managers who may not have thought about this before, and that's within your portfolio. And then as you're going through your next investments, you have someone dedicated on your team who's sort of thinking from this wider lens of what's available. So a lot of that is what's embedded in place and then trying to get the top of the filter maybe a little wider for certain selection of managers that might otherwise unconsciously be screened out. As you look at the industry today and forward the next whatever it is, five years, 10 years, do you think there's a problem that's solvable? The new dean of the Wharton School, where I went undergrad, is a Black woman, Erica James. And she was recently on a TV show. I can't remember which one it was. And she said the issue around diversity is one of prioritization. And I think there's some truth to that. If you make it important, you will solve that problem. And it will take time, but you can solve the problem. I'm actually of the belief that the bigger impact will be on getting the large firms to be more diverse. That has a bigger overall impact than funding diverse managers. Although I think the more bang for the buck is finding these new diverse managers to support and build relationships with over time. But if the big firms of the world have more diverse populations, then ultimately there will be more diverse firms down the road because that's who spins out of the big firms to create these firms at some point. And so that's why we have a lot of conversations with managers that are existing about how they're building their pipeline and how they're training people and how they're exposing people that they might not otherwise have done. So at Carnegie, every two or three years, we do a scorecarding of our whole portfolio. And it's both backwards looking and forward looking, right? So it's backward looking like what have your returns been absolute and relative and whether you've done a good job and whether you've done what we expect you to do in the context of your asset class and the environment. And it's forward looking of, do you have the team? Do you have the governance structure? Is alignment correct? What's your strategy look like? forward-looking, and how does that translate into how good you'll be in the future? This year, for the first time, one of our investment committee members said, you say diversity is important. I want you to do a diversity screen on all your managers as well. And we thought about what that meant, and it was both a matter of whether or not they were making any efforts 
towards creating a more diverse workforce and whether they had a successfully created diverse team versus they're not even interested and they're not talking about it, right? So three different levels. And when we were first doing the scorecarding, we forgot to include the diversity part. And then at the end, we were like, oh my God, we forgot to do this. An IC member asked us to do this. Let's go back and do it. There was a direct correlation to the highest ranked members of our portfolio. Those with the highest scores also had the highest diversity scores. And those were done independent of each other. And it was good to see, and it was good for us to then go back and say to managers, look, the ones who had the best historical performance and the ones who have the best outlook going forward in our portfolio are the ones who had the more diverse teams or were thinking about it in the right way. And so I think that things like that sort of send a powerful message and we can use that when we have conversations with people. So it's gone really well. When you get into the weeds of that scorecard, like how do you measure what the diversity metric is? So we try to meet people where they live right now, right? Like we know that this wasn't on people's minds. We only score, it's one, two, or three. So it's sort of a blunt instrument. So I don't want to imply that it's not. One is you have diversity in your team. You have either ownership, decision-making of women and underrepresented minorities in your leadership. You've done a good job, full stop. That's a one. And is that as relative to the population? Is it one person? It's around whether it's a relevant percentage. And to be honest with you, I can't remember if that relevant percentage is 30% or 50%. I think it's 30% if I'm remembering correctly. So you have some relevant amount of diversity in your team. So that's a one. And a three is you have none and you've no program. Not relevant for me. That's a three. Everything else is a two. You're trying either you or building a pipeline, or you have some, maybe you just have one person and they're not yet a full decision maker, but you're cultivating, you're building them and you're bringing them along. So there's a lot of twos. There's a lot of people who are trying to do something. Not graduating at some point to a one is going to say something, right? You can't just keep saying you're trying and never getting there. So this is the first time we've added diversity score. It'll be interesting to see what the next time, three years from now, looks like and how many people have gone from a three to a two and a two to a three. Because the way we do our scorecarding, it's about trend. It's about improvement over time, not necessarily where they are at any moment. We don't want anybody in the portfolio not to be at least a two over all the different metrics, but it's about being better. I think there were like maybe three different dimensions of diversity and each one was scored one to three. And so some people are a little better, some people are a little worse and you can improve on this thing or not improve on this thing, that kind of thing. So like I said, it's the first shot. We're going to hope to be more clever about it over time. So much of the industry is evaluated on performance. And there's always this question of, will these changes get made if it doesn't look measurable in terms of just investment performance outcomes? Clearly, today, people are more interested after this wave of Black Lives Matter for the right reasons. But will that sustain itself unless there's some way of tying outcomes, kind of like what you saw in your initial diversity score? So it's interesting. So I had a conversation with a group of CIOs at one time, and I said, well, look, the research has shown that the distribution in diverse and women managers is exactly the same as the distribution in the general funds without a diversity lens. I said, I think that there is arguably a sourcing issue, but if you're good at choosing managers and you've been successfully able to be a great manager selector and pick the top quartile, you should be able to do that in diverse managers too. It's the same game. And one CIO took issue with that. She was like, well, I just don't believe that's true. And so my answer is, then that means that you fundamentally believe women and people of color are less than. Of course it has to be the same. <laughs> like, just by the very nature, it has to be the same distribution. Arguably, they should be better because it's so hard for a diverse talent to get capital. If you do, chances are 
you're good, right? Like you may not be great, but you probably weed out all the average because there's not a lot of rich dads who give their diverse people money who are marginal. They're not a lot of that. So that bottom 10% is naturally gone, right? Like, so arguably it should be slightly better, not slightly worse, right? But I do believe that there is a sourcing issue and there is a size of fun issue and there is a for sure business issue because building a business and being successful about building a business and how you cultivate talent and how you fund the organization, which a lot of new managers fail in, is a learned skill, right? Like someone has had to teach you that. So either you learn it at a big firm or you come from a family of people who have been business builders and they have taught you, but somewhere you learn that. And so I think it's about taking the time to make sure that the investment judgment is coupled with good business judgment. And we as LPs can help in that because we have seen what good business looks like. And so that's what we can offer to help make sure these great investors end up being great funds over the long run and trying to find mechanisms to get access to them. Not everyone, just like not every majority fund is going to be right for Carnegie. Not every diverse fund is going to be right, but making sure we see the ones that could be, which means they have to know to come to you and you have to know to find them. So I do think there's a sourcing issue and there's a business building issue, but I don't think there's an investment issue. You mentioned earlier that you thought that the investment in these newer managers, these newer, say, minority-owned managers would have a bigger bang for your buck than getting diversity right in the large established complex of investment management industry. I'm curious why that's the case, given that Certainly, like in the alternatives world, private equity, hedge funds, probably traditional, long only, active management in general feels like it could be on the decline. And it's a mature industry with concentration, which just makes it hard for any new entrant, majority or minority, to kind of make their way. So why do you think you can get the bigger bang for your buck with those direct investments into minority-owned firms? So let me clarify that. So I think the bigger bang for impacting the most people is getting the large firms to get it right. So they can hire more people. They can create a better pipeline. They can feed the diverse manager population over time. So lots of bang there. But performance-wise, I think the bang is in finding really great diverse talent because the issue, I think, is the best returns comes with out-of-the-box thinking. These large firms are already seeped in how they do things. They have an established playbook. They will continue to execute on that playbook. Hard to compete with them on the playbook they have established. But it is with new perspectives and new experiences that you will unearth inefficiencies in untapped markets. So I think that there's the opportunity to get access to an idea that you might not otherwise have had access to and an idea that does not have as much capital chasing it an idea that is future looking and not relevant for the past and they're nimble and they can be quicker they can tap into these ideas they can get access to younger people in a way that maybe the bigger established firms have a harder time doing i remember reading something that said Every great thing that has ever been done in history has been done by people between 24 and 28 years old. It was a ton of examples, including the staff that put a man on the moon. They were like 24 to 28 year olds. The civil rights movement, they were like 24 to 28 year olds. Like all the huge cultural shifts that are profound, that create real opportunity happens with young people. I think these new funds who think of the world differently will tap into a different set of new people. And so I think that there's a real opportunity to leverage that into great performance. Do you think that opportunity set is better in a particular asset class over others? Well, people have said to me all the time, a stock does not know who you are, <laughs> right? Like so, but I do think that the underlying mosaic that you create to come up with what opportunities or what a company can become may be different depending on who's choosing. 
That said, probably the biggest bang for the buck is in alternatives. It's probably in illiquid asset classes. It's in people who think differently about venture or private equity and even probably real estate on some level. People who have lived in different kinds of housing arrangements might think about how you create housing differently. So the way you office space even may be different depending on what you've seen in the past. So I think there's creativity in the illiquid asset classes. And some of those illiquid asset classes, you think about sort of private equity deals or a venture capital ecosystem where some of the prerequisites for success are having the right relationships. Does that create bottlenecks for diverse managers? Yes. But I do think that that's the importance of having people train in the big firms and build networks in the big firms and then spinning out and doing their own thing. I do think networks are important. I do think we all shortcut to people we trust and however you define that trust. And it's really about getting people to widen the lens of how they define who they trust. But it's a protective human instinct to go with people who you have some shared understanding with. And so there is some value in us going out and getting that or cultivating it. Some people are just so outgoing and so great about networking that they can do that independently. It's rare. For those who don't, it's still good to go to schools where you meet people who will help you. It's still good to go and apprentice at organizations where you will meet people who will go on to do great things. You have to find people who are unlike you. We all do. Everybody has to find people who are unlike them to sort of broaden the opportunity set for them. And so that's still the case. So the pipeline is still important. It's still important for people to have programs that cultivate diverse talent at investment banks, at commercial banks, at private equity firms as analysts. As a, I mean, that's still hugely important because that's where the networks come from. Outside of your direct activities at Carnegie you know, with the team and investing, how have you engaged in kind of the broader professional community on these issues? I went in at one time for, I think it was a Twigo Gala. Twigo is a foundation that supports diverse talent in business schools in the investment management industry. And they had a gala and Michelle Obama was the speaker. And she said, if you are in a seat and you are not challenging people on these issues, you're wasting that seat. You should get out of the way and let somebody who's willing to have those conversations have that seat. And I think there's truth to that, right? And so I will engage in those conversations and as often as I can. I also, I give my time to organizations like SEO, where I'm on the LP advisory board and I spend a lot of time with that group of talented young people. Why don't you touch on what SEO is? Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, they have both a careers program, which is getting underrepresented minorities into investment banks, law firms, used to be accounting firms, just different places where they are underrepresented. They also have a scholars program, which is they pick students that are in disadvantaged backgrounds. I think the average income of the families is something like $25,000 a year. And they take these kids and they mentor and tutor them through college, every Saturday from, I think, freshman year of high school, they go to a SEO and they, they get tutoring and they learn classes and they are building a network amongst themselves. They get into college and then SEO sort of provides a backstop for them through college to make sure they get out of college. So they have the careers program, they have the scholars program, and they also have a private equity program where after you finish the careers program, you can apply to be at one of the private equity firms or hedge funds for the two-year internship before you go back to business school. And that's been a hugely successful endeavor. It's been around for a, a fairly long time. I think 85 or 86 is when it started. I'm close, but maybe not as precise on that number. They have a phenomenal alumni network. Just all the highly successful people who are Black and Hispanic people who have come out of the investment banking industry since that era, most of them have some links to SEO. I think it's a great organization and I like to spend a lot of time doing it. And, and I will also participate in any other 
request that's made to me to work with things like NASP, the National Association of Securities Professionals, which is an organization that's dedicated to diverse securities professionals, and anything like that. I'm also on the board of Girls Who Invest, which is also a phenomenal organization who's obviously focused on young women, but also particularly focusing now on diverse young women and making sure they build that pipeline out. These are two phenomenal organizations. I wish I could do more, quite honestly, because it's invigorating, but it's just so many hours in a day. <laughs> Where do you see today the biggest obstacles to making this change happen over time? I think it's the perception that the pie is shrinking. It's the biggest obstacle, right? Like it's really hard for people to think outside of themselves when they feel threatened. If you think as a person in a position of power, if you think that in order for me to support this population, my son, my daughter might not have access, much harder than if you don't have a scarcity mindset. I always give this example. So it's just over 50 years of the African-American Student Union at HBS. And so they had the founders of that organization come and speak at a conference. And they said the way that they were able to increase the number of black students at HBS is by adding a new section. So no one felt threatened. We just have a brand new section. It's not like all the African-American people are in that one section. We sprinkle them throughout, but the number of slots that were available for everybody else has not changed. We've just made the pie bigger. And it's from that moment forward that they were able to increase the diverse population at HBS. There's a little bit of people feeling like it's the same number of sections, and now I have to divide it over more people, and that feels threatening. And I think that even the best-intentioned people, it's in the back of their minds, and it gnaws at them in a way that sometimes feels uncomfortable. So people have to be willing either to figure out how to make the pie bigger or understand there are people who had access before they shouldn't have had access. You know it. Every day you run into people and you're like, this person get this? They are so marginal, right? Like, and I'm gonna try to be unfistable, but those people don't need that job, right? Like they're not good at it. There's too many people who have chosen a profession because it was their family business or the right thing to do that don't belong there. And someone else belongs in that seat. And so changing the mind frame around that, I think has to happen. People have to see that. They have to see that if their kid doesn't make the cut in this thing, it's because there's something better and greater out there for them because this was not their thing. I think that's hard for people to understand, but there's a little bit of reprogramming that has to be done around that. I think that people do have to see it as benefiting them in some way. It's unfortunate, but I think we have to figure out a way for people to understand that their returns are gonna be better, that this is worth giving some light to. This is worth putting your effort into. Some people get there. Some people have to be dragged there. I can't let you go without asking you a few new closing questions that I didn't ask you the last time. All right. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Well, I don't often feel like I have much time outside of work and family. And this is going to sound incredibly boring. But I think the thing that I do most is read. I love books. Since I was a little kid, I've loved books. And it's still the thing that I probably do the most. All right. What is your most important daily habit? So I have new daily habits that have been very different. So my new daily habit, which has had a profound impact on me, and this is something that I'm, other people have done already, but it's new for me. I get up and I get out of my house. My alarm goes off at 645 and I'm on the streets at 7 a.m mostly walking, sometimes running if I feel a need to, but like getting out. And I think it, we're in a pandemic. We're trapped in our house. It's been huge for me to start my day outside. No matter the weather, I start my day outside. And it sort of sets my mind right for the rest of the day. I try to walk at least three miles or run at least three miles or depending on how much time I have, I run if I don't have much time. I walk if I have a lot of time and, and clear my head. But that has been huge for me. I'm kind of excited to ask you this one, but what is your biggest pet peeve? I have a lot of pet peeves. <laughs> I wish I had fewer pet peeves. My biggest pet peeve is 
people who underestimate you, and that's in a lot of different ways, right? Like the people who think that they can tell you a half truth or a, sometimes a lie, but mostly a half truth and that their presumption is that you're so lazy that you won't find that out. Lazy lies are the worst, right? Like if you're going to lie, go for it. Like create a whole narrative that makes it, don't be lazy. (laughs) All right. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? I think my biggest investment pet peeve is one when you have a conversation with a manager about alignment and they try to pretend that they either don't understand it or that they are aligned. You know when you're not aligned. You know when you're proposing something that disadvantages the other person and when it's disingenuous. I mean, I guess all my pet peeves are around lying because, or just being dishonest. Just say it. Just say, you know what? I am charging this fee because I think I deserve it. Maybe it's not fair, but I sort of think I deserve it. Like instead of this creating this narrative around why there's fairness in there, it's not. It's just not. Just own it. Let's all just own our shortcomings. <laughs> all right. Last one. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I think the biggest mistakes that I've ever made is believing what I would like to believe about somebody or something and only seeing what I believe to be their potential versus who they tell me they are. There's all these times when it's a manager or a friend or anybody who they're like, you know, this is who I am. I like this, I do this. And I'm like, yeah, but if I just show you the way, you will like this thing or you will do this thing. And I've spent a lot of time in my life thinking, if I just show people goodness, they will be good. It's a mistake every time. And every time I think, Next time, I'm going to be better about that. I just have to let people be who they are and decide whether or not that's good for me or not. I do it in investing. I think every one of my investment bad mistakes are things where there was something about it that wasn't quite right, but I thought they just need to be shown the way and they will change that thing. People only change when they want to change. You can't make somebody be the thing that you want them to be. And I think That's been a mistake for me in a whole lot of different ways. And I keep learning that lesson over and over again. But when I get it right, I get it right, right? (laughs) Kim, thanks so much once again. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show. And I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.